0: Bienvenidos. Welcome back to the Black Lives Texas podcast, a project from the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPRA. We are your hosts. I'm Ricardo Lowe.
1: And I'm Tracy Lowe.
0: So today we are excited to launch our next series of episodes that will be specifically digging into the topic of the Black middle class.
1: As the income gap between classes in the United States continues to grow, we wanted to take this moment to explore and analyze what this means specifically for those in the Black middle class community.
0: Now, in order to get it started, we need to establish some definitions. What does it mean to be middle class in America?
1: To answer this question, we sat down with Dr. Michelle Dickerson. Dr. Dickerson is a nationally recognized scholar and a global media expert on consumer debt, housing affordability, and home ownership. She is also the author of Home Ownership and America's Financial Underclass, Flawed Premises, Broken Promises, New Prescriptions.
0: So we thought this interview really helped us better conceptualize what it means to be middle class.
1: In future episodes, you can expect to hear from other academics, authors, as well as members of the Black middle class as we take a deeper dive into this community. Let's hear now from Dr. Dickerson. Again, we want to thank you and welcome you to the show, Dr. Dickerson. Before we start, would you mind briefly introducing yourself first? Sure. I'm Michelle Dickerson.
2: I uh, am tenured at the law school at UT, uh, but I also have a courtesy appointment at Liberal Arts Honors. And so I teach classes both at the law school, uh, but I also uh, have one of my classes. In fact, the one that I'm teaching this spring on COVID and financially vulnerable Americans. It's cross-listed. And then last spring and this coming fall, I will be teaching an undergraduate class for uh, liberal arts honors, LAH, uh, which is the same course I'm teaching now, COVID and financially vulnerable Americans. I'll just uh, change a few of the readings and a few of the assignments, but it'll essentially be the same course for the undergraduates.
0: Now, Dr. Dickerson, we know that a lot of your work centers around consumer debt, housing affordability, and home ownership. Can you discuss your research in each of these areas? And can you talk a little bit about what inspires inspires you to do this work, and what continues to bring you back to it?
2: So, a um, little bit of my background. So, I am. I started off teaching bankruptcy um, at William and Mary before I came to the University of Texas. And I, I don't teach it anymore, notwithstanding the, the very long title uh, to my to my chair, um, largely because I found that what really interested me was what was happening with debt with human beings, not what happens with a debtor who files for bankruptcy, but sort of what's going on with consumer debt. And so what in, sort of what inspires me and why I spend so much of my time focusing in on this is we haven't done a great job of connecting the dots to see that these individual problems like housing unaffordability, we'll talk about, or we'll talk about student loan debt, or we'll talk about uh, the gig economy. But for me, it's one and the same. It's why do we have so many people in this country who are financially vulnerable, who can't seem to make ends meet no matter. What they do, how frugal they are, how responsible they are, and so um, I talk about this in the book that I'm that I'm working on frantically this spring, trying to get done during a COVID shutdown, which is interesting. Uh, sort of looks at the middle class. The name of the book is the Neglected Middle Class, and I try to piece together why, you know, problems that we are having with rising consumer debts, why our problems that we're having with housing unaffordability. And when I talk about housing, I mean both affordable housing to own um, or to rent. And so I see all of those as linked. And until we solve the problem of financial vulnerability in a big way, it's not gonna do us any good to sort of look and try to fix pieces of the problem.
1: So Ricky is our esteemed demographer within the Institute. And so when talking to him, it seems like one of the most complicated tasks is kind of finding this objective way to define and operationalize the term middle class. So when you're working in your research, how do you operationalize that term for yourself? In the book that I'm, you would think that when you're writing a book called The Neglected Middle Class that you come up with
2: your own definition. I do not. Um, And the reason that I don't is because We have no official definition of the middle class. If you look at the census, they talk about quintiles, they talk about median household income. They don't give a definition of the middle class. Typically, when we're looking at federal programs, they will define how poor you have to be to receive aid, but they typically don't say when you stop being poor and you become middle class, nor do they say when you stop being middle class and you become rich. So I'll sort of go to the end of the story and then come backwards. The definition that I ultimately decided to use in the book is the way that the middle class is defined at universities that provide middle-class tuition breaks. Because it's the only thing that I've been able to find sort of across the country that uses the term middle-class and also provides specific relief for people who are deemed to be middle-class. I will also tell you that the reason I use that definition is because people can easily, you know, in five years, go online and see sort of where that band is, that economic band is. So, whatever number I might use in the book will change in five years, but the ways that the universities uh, define the middle class will constantly be updated. One of the things that I insist on uh, when I talk about the middle class is middle class is not a state of being, it is a way of living, right? So when I first started doing this research, I would give talks on the middle class, either to other law professors, or there were a couple of times I was talking to reporters and there was this funny moment when I was at the law school and I was giving a talk and I said, you know, the middle class this, the middle class that, and then someone said, we, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. We are not middle class. No, no, we are rich. Now we don't wanna own it because no one wants to say that they're rich. And so the term that I use in the book and in, the, um, in my research, a couple of papers I'm working on, I call them the lower rich, right? So these are the people who earn $200,000. And if you tell them that they are rich, they will argue up and down until, until you pass out because they're not gonna give up, right? that they are not rich. And so I'm like, okay, so if you don't want to be rich, you're not middle-class. So we'll call you lower rich because it's always, well, I don't earn what the top 1%. Yeah, that's true. You don't earn what the top 1% does, but you're also not living the way people who earn sort of 50 to $125,000. And that's generally the range that universities like Texas is a Texas Tomorrow, I think is what our program is called Um, Go Blue is the one for the University of Michigan. So that's typically the band that the economic range that they use. And it is coincidentally, um, sort of the the top number is the one that the the recent uh, American Rescue Plan, they also use that for the top number for people who are eligible for stimulus payments. So for me, the thing that I reject is you are not middle class, if you're concerns are, can you buy a house in Westlake, as opposed to, can you buy a house in the city of Austin anywhere, right? Um, You're not middle class, as as I define the middle class, if your concerns are, I may have to take out student loans to pay for my children to attend Princeton, as opposed to, I don't even think I'm gonna be able to scrape up enough money for my child to go to Texas State. So I'm looking at folks who are um, struggling to afford what I call the markers of the middle class, and sort of traditionally the markers have been: you work hard, you save enough, you can buy a house; you work hard, you save enough, you can retire before you're 80, right? And actually, sort of have a comfortable life, not a you know lavish, but a comfortable life in retirement. So for me, the main thing with middle class, everybody says they're middle class. I think like 90% of this country self identifies as the middle class and it is just mathematically impossible for 90% of anything to be middle. And so that's the reason that I sort of ultimately, it took me two or three years to get there, but I ultimately adopted a definition that seems to be widely accepted in this country at least with respect to providing an economic benefit to a group of people for something that i would view as one of the markers of the middle class
0: so so how do you how do you feel about the term upper middle class or lower middle class like if somebody says well i wouldn't see myself uh you know lower rich i see myself more upper middle class how do you feel about Mm -hmm. those distinctions that people would try to make
2: And so when people say they're upper middle class, I said, okay, so how about if you give away your money to the people who are actually middle class and then you can be middle class, but until then you are rich and you don't want to own it. And I get that. So when you look at surveys and you ask people to self-identify their class, everybody wants to be middle class. And it's largely because in this country, we have decided that the norm is to be middle class. Very few people wake up and they say, I am proud to be poor. Likewise, people are embarrassed to say I'm rich. And in this country, we don't even use the term upper class. So we use this middle thing as middle class, the bottom will say poor, and then we'll say rich, but we never say lower class or upper class because it it has a connotation that has nothing to do with money but more to do with values. And so there are lots of people that will swear they are upper class, um, I'm sorry, um, upper middle class. And my view is if you need to have something that comes before your, um, your, your, your state, I'll give you lower and you can have rich, but I just, I won't have the arguments anymore about people who are struggling and they're only, and so I'll give an example. I was uh, being interviewed by a reporter a couple of years ago and the reporter was talking about um, one of her close friends. Uh, They lived in San Francisco and the friend was a lawyer but worked uh, not at a big law firm but at a public interest organization. And the husband uh, graduated from business school but wasn't sort of a hedge fund type, worked I think at a bank, but their household income was $250,000. And so the reporter says to me, well, You know, in San Francisco, you actually can't buy a home on $250,000. And so my friends, that's the reason that they believe they're middle-class. And my response was, no, that just tells us that you can't be middle-class and live in San Francisco. That doesn't convert someone who earns three to four times median household income in this country into being middle-class it just means that you are living in the part of a country where only rich people can afford to live. So as you can tell, I have really strong views about, and my students, when I teach, um, I used to, I've taught classes called the neglected middle class and also America, Str- um, America struggling middle class. And when students at the beginning of the, ter- of the term use the phrase upper middle class, I'm like, nope, that's just a rich person that doesn't want to own it.
0: <laughs> just, just be
2: happy being rich. And being able to have a household income of $250,000.
0: So I love that definition, by the way. I do too. Yeah, I think it's really good because it does provide an objective viewpoint. Because, you know, a lot of times when we look at middle class, it just seems like there's so much subjectivity in it. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you get to really defining it? And especially along racial lines. I mean, and I think we'll go into this a little bit later. But when you look at the white middle class and you compare it to the black middle class, I mean, The circumstances look a little bit different. There's a demographer at the University of Wisconsin. I think her name is Dr. Addo. And she does a lot of work on how the black middle class um, deals with uh, debt in terms of student loan debts and how that makes them particularly vulnerable. Right. And so, um, you know, some of those things just I I really like the way that you frame it because it it provides us a more objective viewpoint of, of a way to look at it. Um, I wanted to go into this next question. I wanted to see if you can talk about this concept that you discuss in your book, the happy homeowners narrative. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So uh, when I started working on on the first book, I I kept thinking there's something wrong with this whole homeownership. And so the book, it, you know, sort of talks about myths and this happy homeownership narrative. So the happy homeownership narrative is oh, homeownership is the best thing in the world. Oh, everybody should buy a home because homes always go up in in value. They are the best investment that everyone can make. Oh, if you're a homeowner, you're a smarter person. You're a better person. You're more involved in your community. Uh, your children are smarter. Your household is happier. I mean, this is this notion, uh, this mythology that we've come up with in this country since the nineteen sort of forties. Uh, because we were not a home ownership nation until the united states decided to create homeowners after world war uh, ii but this notion that everybody should buy a home and you are better off and happier if you're a homeowner is just many of those myths they're just wrong Uh, they may have been true at some point but they're no longer true the challenge is we have created a series of laws and policies that favor people who are homeowners um, statistically it is more likely that you will be a homeowner if you are white than you are black or latino uh, Homeownership rates increase with household income so the richer you are the more likely you are to actually own your home so what we do is we give tax benefits to people who are homeowners we give homeowners the ability to basically veto who lives in their neighborhood. So, the not in my backyard syndrome has turned into the not in my neighborhood syndrome. If it's a single family um, neighborhood, a neighborhood that mostly has homes that are uh, single family housing, they will do anything possible to keep out renters because of this notion that there's something wrong with being a renter and something wrong with multifamily housing. So when you look at zoning laws, when you look at the you know, pitched fights that a lot of neighborhoods have gotten into about whether or not you can cite single family housing or any type of affordable housing in a neighborhood, it's because of this myth that if you allow renters into a neighborhood that mostly consists of homeowners, you will somehow taint or ruin the neighborhood Um, And then as we saw during the, the 2007, 2009 recession, this notion that if you buy a home, homes always go up in value, it's just not true, right? We still have people that are struggling to make their mortgage payments from 2009. Tons of people lost their homes during the recession because their homes didn't increase in value, but their mortgage was still there. So they found themselves trapped in this house that was worth less than they owed on the mortgage. And a lot of people either just walked away from the house or they had a short sale or they, there was a foreclosure and they lost, um, they lost the house. So there are great things about homeownership. I'm not saying that people should not necessarily aspire to become a homeowner, but being a homeowner also looks very different depending on whether you're a white homeowner or you're a black homeowner. Black owned homes are not valued as high in the market as white owned homes. If you send an appraiser into a predominantly non-white neighborhood, the homes will be appraised at less than they will be, even if it's the same square footage, same basic features they are going to value the homes less if it's in a black, uh, predominantly non-white neighborhood. And even if it's a, if we, uh, there was a December, 2020, I think article in the Washington Post involving a black woman who's married to a white male. She had her home appraised and she said, mm, that seems a little bit low. And so they tried an experiment. They, she went in the house, they removed, and as the, the Washington Post article, they removed all uh, evidence of blackness from the home. They took the pictures off the wall. They took the family pictures out and they removed the black woman and her child. Her husband stayed at the home when the appraiser came back and what a surprise. It was appraised at $130,000 more than the original appraiser. So it's not just black homes, black owned homes in non-white neighborhoods, it's black owned homes even in white neighborhoods because of this bias against black homeowners. So, you know, again, I'm not saying that black people shouldn't buy homes, but I think that we need to understand the myths associated with homeownership, and the fact that those myths don't always work as well for us.
1: Yeah, and I have a follow-up question to to what you were saying, because of the the racial implications of that. And so thinking about the black middle class, and what that means for home ownership. Can you talk about that? Because I know I like the way you said that people who live in California with 200,000, they're just rich they're living in a part of the country where middle-class won't give them what they want. But in terms of black middle-class and it's and the way it's defined, what does is, what is that home ownership narrative mean for them if there is this these racial biases and discrimination?
2: So um,
1: I'll, I'll sort of preface it and then answer your question. When
2: I have given talks in the past, especially when I first started doing this research before the first book came out, uh, the level of hostility I got mostly from black, black and brown people uh, when I talked because they thought I was saying black and brown people shouldn't buy homes, which is not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that we need to understand what we are getting into when we buy homes. The black middle, all of, all of the middle class has most of their wealth in their homes. So the middle class of all races, we are more likely to have most of our household wealth in houses than rich people. Rich people, most of their wealth is not in their home. So that's one thing that we are doing that rich people aren't doing. Second thing, black middle class has more of their wealth in their homes than the white middle class. So unfortunately, when we lost our homes during the recession, we lost our wealth. I mean, decades of wealth were wiped out because of the recession. So when I say that Black people should or should not buy homes, and so this is one of my more radical um, suggestions, if you're a parent and um, you're looking at where you want your kids to go to school, you may be better off renting for 18 years in an area where your kids are zoned for a higher performing school than buying a home where you can afford if it's not the school you would want your children to go to and again everybody gets to make the decision about the environment the racial mix the economic mix that they want in a school but we need to understand that housing choice and school choice k-12 school choice are linked because we decide who gets to go to which school by your street address. So again, when we're making decisions about whether we want to become a homeowner as a black person or a brown person, we need to take some different things into account than white homeowners do simply because the housing and the lending markets have always been, well, initially they were explicitly racist now they're just biased against black and brown people when we try to buy homes. So, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't become homeowners, but we do need to understand that there are implications for schools, um, for our children. And also, if we have too much of our wealth in one asset and that asset disappears, so does all of your household wealth.
0: It's 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 interesting because... Um... I know we know a lot about how recession well, I'm learning more as as we speak, but how the recession inhibited black homeownership. Um and now with COVID nineteen, I'm wondering if there's any studies to talk about the extent to which black homeownership has suffered under the present circumstance. Do you know of anything that's that's going on right now?
2: Not really. Although the the bizarre thing with um COVID nineteen. So, you know, people say, Oh, not anymore, but Sort of a prior administration, right, kept suggesting that it was going to be a V-shaped recovery, and it has most decidedly been a K-shaped recovery. So when you look at what's going on in the housing market right now, it's actually on fire at the high end. Um, in terms of the the uh, the city of Austin, people can't really afford to move in the city of Austin because it is so expensive to find a home here anywhere. So people are basically trapped in their homes, unless they're gonna move to another city. If you're selling here and you're trying to move up, you may not be able to afford to move up, even though you're going to get significantly more when you sell your house in the city of Austin. So COVID is having sort of a weird, it's having a catastrophic effect on people with respect to evictions. Although with the eviction moratorium now that that should obviously add some relief. The challenge with the um, mortgages is we don't know what's going to happen. Right? So we've got also got the more the mortgage moratorium, but both of these, they're not forgiveness plans. We're just delaying it. And so to the extent that black homeowners have kept their jobs during COVID, that they've been able to safely work from home, they should be fine. But for folks who lost their jobs or who have had uh, significant medical expenses or uh, income losses because they got sick with COVID, when the mortgage, sort of when the bills come due, I fear we're going to see another wave of foreclosures.
0: Wow. I saw an op ed that you wrote, uh, mm-hmm. maybe it was a couple of years ago, and I saw that you were talking about mortgage interest. Deductions. Um, I'm not too sure if I'm smart enough to understand enough about it. So I'm glad that we have you here, so that we can ask you the question in person. But can you explain a little bit about mortgage interest uh, deduction and how does it lead to disparate outcomes for the middle class?
2: Yeah. So the mortgage interest deduction is really just a way to subsidize housing for rich people, and you know the, the bipartisan agreement on that. You talk to folks on the very left, on the very right, everybody says that. The home, the mortgage interest deduction does not um, cause the home ownership rates to increase. Now, this is one of these myths of home ownership. Oh, you want to buy a home because you get this great mortgage deduction. Otherwise, you're just throwing your money down the toilet, right, if you're renting. Well, the only way you get a mortgage interest deduction is if when you fill out your taxes, you itemize. Most middle class families don't itemize. Most taxpayers don't itemize. They take the standard deduction. And this was even before the 2017 tax cuts, which made it even less likely that people will itemize because we increased the amount of the standard deduction. Um, Congress increased the amount of the standard deduction in the 2017 tax cuts. So basically, If you have a mortgage that's up to $750,000, there's some grandfathering, so sometimes it's a mortgage of up to a million, then you are able to deduct the interest that you pay on that mortgage. So let's assume that you have a very modest uh, home, you you know, your mortgage is $150,000. You are highly unlikely to be able to deduct interest because the amount of the standard deduction is going to be bigger than what you would get if you itemized your deductions, which means you're going to take the standard deduction. Let's go on the other end and say that you have a mortgage of uh, $750,000. Now, what we know in most cities, if you have a mortgage of $750,000, you are not middle class, right? Middle class people don't own homes where you need a $750,000 mortgage on it, which means that we are allowing rich people who are itemizers to be able to deduct the mortgage, the interest that they pay on their $750,000 mortgage, and we're subsidizing their housing. We're not encouraging them to buy homes. They're going to buy homes anyway. You can take away the mortgage interest deduction they will still buy homes. And in fact, in 2017, when we uh, when they reduced the amount of the mortgage from a million to 750, it was, oh, if you reduce it, people will stop buying houses. And I kept thinking, no, they're not, because people that want to own homes are going to own homes. They're not buying the house because of the deduction. All you're doing is subsidizing their housing costs by allowing rich people who have a mortgage of a million dollars to be able to deduct the interest on their mortgage? It does not help increase middle-class home ownership rates. All it does is subsidize the housing cost for rich people. We don't have a rental deduction. You know, people that, that pay rent. In my view, is if we want to make if we want to make housing um, affordable, why are we spending so much of our tax expenditures? on rich people and if you're a renter that's really the one that needs to get some sort of a whether it's a deduction or a tax credit renters get
1: nothing i like that interest don't give anything
0: i know i love that too i was just <laughs> i like because i was going to ask you know um in terms of in layman's terms what what does it mean to itemize like what, what does it mean okay. to itemize and how can a true middle-class household even benefit from itemizing if they could if that makes sense (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: yeah so um you file your you know you, you file your income tax and if you have the types of deductions that you are allowed to list separately so um a mortgage the interest on a mortgage um state and local taxes um charitable uh you know when people donate you know to charity well if you can, and I'm just gonna make up a number because I don't remember what the, the standard uh, deduction is, but let's assume that, you know, the standard amount is $30,000, right? If all of the, what you paid on interest and what you paid in the state and local taxes and what you paid in terms of charity, if it's only $25,000, it doesn't make sense to itemize and get a $25,000 deduction when you can get the $30,000, which is the standard deduction. Whereas if you have a mortgage of $750,000, the interest that you pay, the amount of state and local taxes that you pay is likely going to exceed the $30,000 standard deduction. So if it's 35,000 or 40,000 know whatever it is, it is going to be in your economic interest to itemize your deductions and take a bigger amount off of your taxes than to take the lower amount for the standard deduction. Whereas for most middle-class households, they're never going to have enough deductions to get them over whatever the amount of the standard deduction is. So it doesn't matter if you say, oh, you can get a tax deduction for this, that, and the other. If you can't get up to an amount that exceeds the standard deduction, you're never going to take advantage of those benefits. So again, it's another myth. Most people, when they hear, oh, you can deduct it on your taxes, yeah, but only if you itemize your deductions. And I think since 2017, I can't remember the exact number, but we're approaching sort of 80% of Americans are um, t- took the standard deduction, which means it's of no benefit right, to most Americans. And it certainly doesn't benefit the American middle class.
1: I learned a lot from that. Um just thinking about items. And I I I don't well I didn't go to UT Austin for undergrad, but I wish I could be in one of your classes. If uh I might email you to audit one cuz it's just a lot of these things that you you were talking about now in terms of just interrogating like home ownership and what that means. I feel like I was fed the narrative of home ownership is is the way to go and if you if you're able to um and it there wasn't really like a flip of the coin, like well this is the pros, this is the cons, these are all the things to consider. It wasn't comprehensively presented. So this is, I think, going to be is a really informative kind of narrative to put out there. Um, and in terms of being a renter, because when you tell people you rent, there is this kind of like oh, well, you just rent. Like what are you doing wrong? And so when mm-hmm. I was reading your book, I was like okay, so I was like this is this 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 makes sense because. You know as a renter you're painted as maybe less like um savvy with your money and just kind of this picture is painted so i can appreciate the way that in your book you talk about these and you kind of like have people just to think about what that looks like from the other side um so again i appreciate that so this this is a question this next question is one um that i know me and ricky were kind of talking about a lot in terms of like the vulnerability of the black middle class and just thinking about what happened with the Capitol riots and potentially what was happening with that. And So, Ricky, you may be able to say this better than me, but I think the point that you were getting at is we all know that the Capitol riots happened. And I think there was some information or some data that pointed to the fact that a lot of the rioters were middle class individuals. We were just interrogating our own ideas in terms of white middle class resentment and what that could mean for the black middle class. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, on that particular topic and what happened there? Oh, oh
2: yeah. So we, we got to go back to 2016. We're not going to start at January 6th, right? So um, <laughs> when uh, we had uh, the former president um, running against um, Hillary Clinton, there was this notion of the angry middle class. The thing that no one was willing to do at that time was to say, the silent part out loud. And the silent part was the parenthetical with white in the middle, right? So it wasn't, all the middle class wasn't angry in the way they were being portrayed during the 2016 election. It was the angry white middle class that was being portrayed as you know, they lost their jobs in the Midwest and they used to work at a plant and they don't have their job and they feel like America doesn't care about them and has left them behind. And so when they when we hear the term, people are much better about it now, I will, I will say, but when people have talked about the angry middle class, I've always said, okay, are we talking about the angry white middle class or the angry middle class? Because, Black people, brown people are middle class too, but you didn't see them part of the dialogue and the conversation in the 2016 election. So, if you didn't have black people and brown people angry in 2016, you have to ask why. So, there's a couple of reasons, right? Maybe blacks and uh, black and brown folks weren't mad because they thought that America was just treating us so well that we had no reason to be upset. You know, there was you know, no discrimination and we were favored, or maybe the reason that you didn't have um, the angry overall middle class is because it's always been a struggle to become middle class if you're a black or a brown person. So when we created the middle class, when the federal government created the middle class after World War II, we mostly did it by making it easier for people to buy homes We also did it through the GI Bill by making it easier for people uh, returning uh, GIs to be able to go to college, but the middle class that was created at that time was by design, a white middle class. So black people couldn't qualify for the FHA insured loans to buy homes. Even if you got a GI loan as a veteran, you couldn't go to a lot of universities, including ours at that time because they wouldn't enroll blacks to go there. So when you fast forward sort of through the forties and the fifties and the sixties up until 2016, the white middle-class had reason to be angry. They were just angry at the wrong people, right? So they had reason to be angry for the same reason that black people and brown people who are striving to become middle-class or who are middle-class, the reason that they have reason to be angry. Um, Employment, the labor uh, uh, market has changed dramatically since the 1980s, which is when we had a pretty strong and robust middle-class. So you are lucky if you can find a job that is permanent, and full-time, as opposed to you're working for a temporary agency, or you're a contractor, or you're in the gig economy. Um, If you do find a full-time permanent job, you may not have income that is steadily increasing as it did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s. The types of employee benefits that you have now aren't the same type that you would have had in the 1980s. You don't have a pension. So when you think of sort of what it means to be middle class, it's that I mentioned earlier, it's the ability to retire and have a somewhat comfortable lifestyle in retirement. Well, it was easier to do that when you had a pension. So when we now fast forward to sort of through uh, the 2016 election and up until January the 6th, when the angry white middle class says it's angry It's not angry for the reasons that the middle class is angry because the middle class has grounds to be angry. You get up, you work hard, you go to work, you follow the rules and you still can't make ends meet. The difference is the angry white middle class is angry at non-whites. And so the reason we can't get a good job, the reason we can't find a full-time job with benefits, they have decided it's because our good jobs were sent to china right so the whole notion of the outsourcing or the the global sourcing of manufacturing jobs when in fact if you look at the manufacturing a lot of the manufacturing industries and plants the jobs are being performed by robots so if you want to get mad at someone rather than saying you know our jobs are being sent overseas maybe go in and get mad at the robot that's performing your job but they don't (laughs) The other thing is they get mad about, you know, those Mexicans, right? Those Mexicans are coming here and taking our jobs or, you know, shipping our jobs down to, to Mexico. And again, if you look at the jobs that most undocumented immigrants take when they come to this country, those are jobs working in low wage, dangerous agriculture. So they're not coming here and taking jobs that are in sort of uh, middle skilled, middle wage jobs that would have existed in the 1980s for the middle class. They're not taking those jobs because those jobs largely don't exist. So again, when we hear this sort of trope of oh, the angry middle class, I always wanna say, let's include the word white and let's let's just be clear that when we're saying it's economic anguish, It is economic anguish, but the problem is they choose not to be angry at the robots or at the top 1% that has a disproportionate amount of earned income goes to the top 1% and a disproportionate of wealth is controlled by the top 1%. But we don't get mad at those. We get mad at people who don't look like us. And I think that's what we saw a lot of with the January with 16 rioters is there's this you know sort of pent up anger, but they're not angry at the right people.
0: Yeah, that's what I was looking at because I was just looking at the people who were getting caught. Some of them were doctors, some of them were, some of, you know, people that would actually be part of the low rich group that you were talking about, okay. right? So I'm like, it had me thinking whether um, racism really is, you know, Tony Morrison, I believe said this, but racism is distraction. And just thinking about racism as a distraction for class solidarity sometimes. I mean, like there might exactly. be some things that the white middle class and the black middle class can come together and say, you know, we have issues with this. We should be talking about, you know, um, robots and, and our work being taken away from us. But they use racism as a way to, to distract them from to project their anger elsewhere.
2: <laughs> and so, I think that there it, it's it's by design, right, because right. the last thing you want to have happen is for the middle class to unite. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the top 1%, you don't want the middle class to unite because the black, white, brown, middle class has much more in common than they have that are their differences. It's, and so for for black and brown people, we're always going to run into the problem of whether it's discrimination in mortgage markets, because that still goes on, discrimination in housing markets with appraisers, uh, with jobs, we have that additional burden, but we can't create a factory in Detroit that is providing high wage uh, union jobs any more than the white middle class can. You know, mm-hmm. We can't force Amazon to hire people on a permanent basis rather than using a bunch of contractors. We can't do that, nor can the white middle class. So if we really had the middle class to unite and look and see, hmm, I wonder who has done well during COVID, because it's, it's been a tale of two pandemics. We have the people who are working from home. Not only have they not lost their jobs, most of them have not had to deal with the health risk uh, that people who work face-to-face have had to deal with, and- in terms of their actual sort of disposable income, they they didn't get a raise, but the income has gone up because they're not spending. So whereas the folks who were being forced to work or required because of the nature of their jobs of the essential workers that have to work face to face, they are actually incurring the same work expenses, if not more than they always did Whereas people who are sitting in their homes, you know, working in front of a computer, they're not going out for lunch, they're not putting gas in the car. I mean, all of the things that you typically would, we're not traveling, you know, we're not going to games, we're not going to concerts. So even though we didn't actually receive a raise, for most people who are safely working from home, they have the functional equivalent of a raise. Because your expenses have gone way down.
1: So, uh, and this is this is a question that that Ricky came up with, and I'm just curious too. So, what are some what are some creative ways or just just practical ways to make home ownership accessible to everyone? And is that even necessary? Is it is it just necessary to have a conversation and open it up to what it means to to be a homeowner and a renter? And just like. What are, what are some ways that we can just start to talk about these narratives more comprehensively?
2: So when I first, when I wrote the first book, I was focused on homeownership. And when I ended the book, I was, you know, kind of anti-homeownership. And the main reason I became anti-homeownership is not that there's anything wrong with homeownership, because there's not. But the, the, the crisis that's facing our country now is affordability. So it is the inability to buy a house for a lot of folks that want to become homeowners. It's the inability to find affordable rent in the city of Austin without you having to live in Buda or having to live in Manor and drive into work every day. So for me, the issue with homeownership is not so much why everybody needs to buy a home. I would like us and to have our sort of policies both local, state and, and federal, to pivot toward how can we make housing more affordable for everybody? And so little things like we need to get rid of the, the uh, mortgage interest deduction. The, you know, the, I don't see why we're continuing to subsidize housing for rich people. Uh, we need to look at the way we um, allow uh, nimbyism, right? The not in my backyard, folks. So when they start complaining because affordable housing, whether it's an apartment uh, or townhouses, are going to be built in their neighborhood. And I tell you what they're going to say, oh, you know, we're going to increase the traffic. Oh, you know, it's going to cause the schools to be overcrowded. At some point, we need to call it what it is. If it's not flat out racism, it's certainly classism. And we have to ask, why are we allowing people to decide who gets to go to a public school that they don't own but parents truly believe it's my neighborhood it's my neighborhood school except it's a public school and you don't own it so if you want to control who is going to be in the classroom with your child you might want to consider homeschooling because that's the only place that you're going to be able to control it so I think that when uh, local leaders are thinking about either changing, allowing for a rezoning proposal so that you can build affordable housing or multifamily housing, that we need to be honest about what we're hearing when we hear uh, the sort of NIMBY, not in, you know the not my backyard type of objections. I also think in terms of zoning, we need to move away from the model that we need these big old houses, right? You know, So y'all's age, right? Y'all don't want to buy houses to begin with, right? You're you moving, you don't want to be tied down, right? So you're not, you don't have this notion of got to buy a house, got to put down roots on a 15 to 30 year mortgage, which means I'm trapped in this city for the next 15 to 30 years because you all don't think like that. The housing market hasn't caught up with the way that sort of people under the age of, I'd say, 40 approach um, housing choices, right? And so it would be helpful if we would not have zoning laws that say you have to have a minimum lot size, because what that then does is it forces developers to have to buy, I'm sorry, to have to build big homes, and we don't need them. You know, when you look at the average family household size, it's shrinking. So it is no longer the norm that you have um, husband, wife, and 2.3 children. You may have you know, parent with children, you may have two partners, no children. So this notion that we have to build housing based on a household model that really no longer applies is also silly. And the other thing is, you know, anytime you try to suggest things like, what about like small houses, the tiny houses? I couldn't live with one because I'm old, I got too much stuff, right? But for a lot of people who are younger, you all don't have the problem with living in smaller space because you only use the house to sleep in anyway. Whereas once you get older, you need the house, especially now with COVID, it's like, I got to have everything here, everything possible, everything stuff I don't necessarily want to have here. So I think what we really need to do is to be more creative about what we think a function of housing is and the fact that it is owned or rented shouldn't determine the policies that allow us to make housing affordable for everybody and not just for rich
1: people. Yeah,
2: I don't know if that was positive but that's the, that's, the, that's the closest positive <laughs> I can <get> <laughs>
1: those, those, that's what we want in terms of thinking about all the all of those conversations and policies and what it means to make housing affordable. So I again thank you for that too
0: i did have one more question though I, um because i saw i i saw your face lit up a little bit when i mentioned student loans in and, and black middle class do you have anything to say about that like does eliminating student loans would that make it easier for the black middle class would that help to stabilize the black middle class in a way
2: um it 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 could so let me back into that the problem is blacks are have are, are disproportionately more likely to borrow uh, the reason that blacks are more likely to borrow is because black household in um, income is lower on average than white household income. So uh, your parents aren't gonna be able to sort of you know, pay from disposable income for you to go to college. There are college savings plans. Uh, the part of the tax code is uh, section 529, so they're called 529 plans. Whites are more likely to invest in a 529 plan than blacks higher income. Households are more likely to invest in a 529 plan than everybody else. So we have lower income. We typically don't have our uh, college savings and a sort of a tax deferred um, fund, and we don't have wealth. And, and that's huge, right? So you have a lot of families where mom and dad may not be able to pay the uh, tuition, but the grandparents can, or the grandparents can borrow against the house their house and use that money to help pay for the grandchild to go to college. So what ends up happening is blacks borrow more. We then go into a a labor market that maybe doesn't pay us and often doesn't pay us the same that a comparable uh, white uh, college graduate would be paid and we struggle for decades to repay our student loans. So yes, and Particularly, and I'm gonna try not to you know, say anything awful, but particularly we have disproportionately high enrollment numbers at for-profit colleges. We borrow too much because they don't give any sort of financial assistance. The graduation rates at for-profit colleges are abysmally low. So you're stuck with the debt, but you don't get the degree and therefore you don't get the college premium boost in terms of your income. So whatever Congress chooses to do in terms of eliminating student loan debt, the first place I want them to look is at the for-profit colleges. You know, do you expand it out to make, you know, community colleges free for two years? Do you, uh, you know, forgive 10,000, 15,000? I mean, there are lots of numbers, 50,000, thousand, right? Lots of numbers that are being tossed around uh, Congress right now, but at a bare minimum, I would like Congress to focus in on student loan debt for students who attended for profit colleges and didn't graduate because that those that combination means you will never become middle class.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's a powerful point. Yeah. Yeah, I actually opened two 529s for my baby boys. Uh, I have a five year old and a three year old. And um, Mm -hmm. I used to work for the federal government as a statistician for a short period of time. And so um, I was hearing, what you know, some of the things that people were doing for their kids. I was like, well, maybe I should do the same for mine. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I try to tell, you know, as many people about it. But, you know, um, it's really tough. It's very difficult. I mean, it took me, I had to get my master's degree to be in a space where a lot of the and I was talking about working for the federal government, where a lot of people who are working in that same position, they were predominantly white, they were predominantly male. And they got there with their bachelor's degree. And it took all that for me to be in that space. So I know how difficult it is for us to to be in these spaces and still not be paid comparably. So exactly. Um, yeah.
2: and, he, and we know with the five twenty nine. So I you know, when you teach bankruptcy, you spend all of your life thinking that you are like one bus going to hit me. Away from poverty. Right. And so I say I mean, I'm one of those weird, you know, the bankruptcy people. When we sit together and talk, nobody wants to be around us because they're like, You didn't take out long term care insurance. Oh, I've got disability, I've got A D and D. I mean, we have every single thing because we are sure that something awful is going to happen and we're going to you know be, be bankrupt. And so I opened up the 529s for my kids. I joke, it took a week for one of them. The other one was only a day old because, you know, you had to get that social security number. Right. And what I've had to, you know, to try to convince like friends and family to open them. And these are folks that actually could afford to, but there's just this resistance. Well, why would I do that? And it's, you know, and, and you know, c- commend you for doing it when they're little. You put that money there. And you just let it wait and it grows and it grows tax-free yeah most of us don't even know the tax benefits of doing that so we don't do it or we discount well what difference does 25 dollars a week a month or whatever make it makes a lot over 18 years trust me it's gonna make a difference when your child gets ready to go off to college
0: absolutely yeah i put 50 dollars in a piece for them every month and mm-hmm. a lot of it is also predicated on my father. Both of my parents are immigrants from Panama. My dad always says, you know, we came to this country to get take advantage of this education. So he's always put my father's always putting stuff in my head about, yo, do this, do this and do that. Um, but, you know, I feel like it is a responsibility as, a, as my responsibility as an academic, as a black academic, to also let people know about these things as well. So I, I do inform all of my friends who have kids that they should look into it as well. So exactly. I think. Definitely appreciate you talking about that because I think a lot of people can benefit from that listening to this episode as well. Thank you so much for, for coming through and speaking with us today. It was uh, I think we learned a lot from this conversation and I think our viewers, I said viewers like they're going to watch, but our listeners, will <laughs> our, <definitely>, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> our listeners will definitely benefit from this conversation. I think this is a piece that we definitely needed to insert and um, we're just fascinated with your work and all that you do. So it's definitely been an honor to speak with you.
2: Well, thank you for having me on. I mean, for, for me, it's just, you know, anytime I get to talk about sort of the, the good, the bad, the ugly for home ownership or housing and more importantly, sort of what we need to do to stabilize the black middle class. Uh, I'm all there. So I thank you both for giving me the opportunity.
0: Thank you again, Dr. Dickerson, for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. If you would like to learn more about our work, we have links in the show notes.
1: Also, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about home ownership, education, and other issues facing the black middle class? Email us your thoughts as a voice memo or a note at black Lives, Texas, Podcast at gmail.com.
0: We will be back in two weeks with another episode. This time, Tracy is taking the lead and talking about the ins and outs of being a black middle class woman. You don't want to miss it, so make sure you have subscribed to the podcast.
1: Also, if you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your community.
0: Black Lives Texas is a podcast by the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin.
1: It is produced and hosted by Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe, with additional production and editing by Mariah Gossett. Our music is by Upper Reality. Until next time.
0: Hasta luego. One love.